Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySouthland.com. All right, Luke chapter 24. I started this series uh, last year on September the 29th, and uh, we've taken 10 months to go through uh, the book of Luke. And so today we finish. And this week, uh, later this week on Thursday, I'm going to leave on holidays and I'll be gone for several weeks. Uh, Chris Pugh actually will be preaching next week. And then after that, you'll have, uh, you'll have uh, the reverend, the reverend father himself, my dad and pastor Ray will be back and he'll speak a couple of times. So, so anyway, this will be good. But anyway, I'm going to finish this off. And by the way, if you think 10 months is a long series, I looked up a famous uh, preacher this last week and he had preached the book of Luke and he preached through the book of Luke at his church for 10 years straight. Okay? Now, just so you know, I could do that. Okay? I just, I just didn't. So we're going we're gonna to move on. There's lots more in Luke I didn't touch on. But anyway, um, we're going to finish Luke. And I'm going to read you the last little portion. At the end of this message, I'll read you the last three verses of the book of Luke. And this is just uh, this is a, a finish on a high note. And, and uh, by the way, I thought the worship just set it up so beautifully today. Isn't God good? And that's what this message is about today. It's about God is good. And we end the book of Luke on a high note. And so I'm going to start in verse 36. I'm going to read you seven verses here to start the message. And, and, uh, and just a little bit of the setting. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. And, uh, and the women have gone to the tomb and found it empty. A couple of disciples went and saw it empty. They don't know what's going on. They don't, they don't believe yet that he's resurrected. And now they're hiding behind closed doors and they're worried. Their leader has been crucified, brutally killed, and they are worried that they're next. And so they're hiding behind closed doors, very worried. And so we pick up the story, verse 36, as they were talking about these things. Jesus himself himself stood among them. Now remember, they're behind locked doors. And it doesn't say locked doors in this passage, but if you go to John chapter 20, uh, he gives us extra information. We know the doors are locked. So think about that. They're behind closed doors. They're frightened. And the Greek there is, has the connotation of suddenly. And suddenly he stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Okay? But they were startled and frightened. Now, I wonder why that would be. I mean, really, they were startled and frightened. You know what? I, I just get a little bit of sense. And I'm going to talk about this in, in just a moment. I, there's more going on to this than just this. But I really feel... Like we're seeing a little bit of Jesus's mischievous side here again. Don't you think? I mean, he could have done this in different ways. He could have given a warning. He could have knocked on the door and said, hey, it's Jesus. And there might have been a bit of a shock. And then, well, let's, you know, look through the peephole and see if it's really him. But he doesn't knock on the door. He doesn't give him any warning. He just, poof, in the middle of him behind closed doors. What would you be if Jesus did that to you? I mean, it just reminded me. I'm kind of getting off topic and I need to read this passage. But do you mind if I just stop for just a moment? It just reminds me of about a month ago or so, just before Pastor Ray and Fran left for the month for all the writing and stuff in Vancouver. I happened as I was in the staff room, and it just reminds me of this a little bit. I'm not Jesus for sure, but anyway, I, uh, I, I was in the staff room, and I just saw my mom coming in in the morning. I saw her park her car, and I quickly ran around because I knew which door. There's a little door at the back of the office that she likes to come in usually. And so I saw her. I quickly ran around the corner, and I waited till she opened the door, and then I just jumped out and said, Hi, Mom, like this. And uh, she literally, she shrieked clutched her chest like this. And then when she came up, she said, Christopher, you, and then I can't repeat what the name that she called me. Okay. Now, now in her defense, 
It wasn't a swear word, but it was so politically incorrect, I can't say it. I'll get emails, okay? <laughs> and then I said to her, what? I, all I said was, hi, mom. And then she said, Christopher again, and called me the name again. So I was like, okay, I, I, better, just, <laughs> I better just walk away now. But, you know, I almost get the idea. I mean, he just pops up in the middle of them and says, peace to you. And I know it's bigger than that. He, I mean, he's saying peace to them about all the fears and stuff they're going through. But I feel like 10% of this, my opinion, we're going to find out in heaven. My opinion is, part of this is he did this on purpose, okay? And so they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, a ghost. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. All right. And so peace to you. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? So quite apart from the fact that he's just startled them, he's speaking to them about the fact, why are you behind closed doors here so afraid? Why are you so afraid? And of course, we would say, well, they're afraid because they just saw you crucified. Now he's going to give them a demonstration. No. Why are you so afraid? He's going to give them a demonstration. And in this one demonstration, he's going to take away all their fears. He's going to change their emotional outlook on life so that for the rest of this little portion of Luke, their dominant emotion is going to be overwhelming joy. And then in, in Luke's sequel, right? Because Luke didn't write one book. He wrote two books. And most of you might know that, but some of you might not. Uh, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. So there's Luke. And right where Luke ends off, the sequel, the book of Acts, picks up in Acts chapter 1 and keeps going. The interesting thing is Jesus is about to give them a demonstration. So they're behind locked doors. He says, why are you troubled? Why are you so afraid? And then he's going to give them a demonstration. And after this demonstration, for the rest of this little piece of the book of Luke, and then all through the book of Acts, for the rest of their lives, they're going to go from a fearful, doubting bunch to an absolutely bubbling with joy, bold, fearless bunch. All in one demonstration. What is the demonstration? Verse 39, he says to them, See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So what does Jesus do to take away all of their fears? He shows them that he's physically alive. And this does two things, right? The first one is it dispels their fear. Their, one of their fears is just that he's a ghost, right? So in the moment, that's the quick one because he startled them. He startles them. They think he's a ghost. And uh, he says, well, touch me. I'm, I'm real flesh and blood. I'm a physical person. But even more than the ghost thing, the bigger thing, why they're behind closed doors in the first place is two days, just a couple of days, two or three days earlier, they just saw him die a horrific death on the cross. They watched it. They watched the skin off his back be utterly flayed off with a whipping. They watched him nailed to a cross, hang there, gasping for death. They saw him actually die. And now he stands before them, not as a ghost, not as a hallucination, not as a dream. He stands before them physical like you and me and says, touch my hands and touch my feet. And we know in John 20, he also says, touch my side. Basically, touch everywhere where I've been wounded. He says, I want you to touch me everywhere here. And in that moment, when they see that he's physical, after seeing him dead, all of their fears are washed away. Why? Because death has been defeated. What else is there to fear? 
They watched him die. Here he is a couple of days later, and he's physically alive in front of them. That means why were they behind closed doors in the first place? They were behind closed doors in the first place because they were afraid of what the Jewish leaders and the Romans might do to them. But now that they see him alive after what the Jews and the Romans did to him, they know now that they have nothing more to fear. And for the rest of their lives, the rest of this little piece of the book of Luke and on through the book of Acts and the rest of their lives, they're going to be utterly fearless and full of joy. It actually kind of reminds me. Um, oh, here, let's go to verse 41. If you guys could put up uh, verse 41 there, I'm skipping around on the PowerPoint people a little bit. In verse 41, it says, and while they still disbelieved for joy. Now, this is, uh, this is not a bad kind of disbelief. Throughout the book of Luke, we find the disciples often doubting and disbelieving in a bad way. Uh, or in a weak way. Not, not a bad way, but in a weak way. This is not a bad disbelief. This is a disbelieving for joy. It's like a pinch myself. Is he actually here? Are we, are we experiencing this? Like we just saw him die. Is he physically here in front of us right now? I, I got to pinch myself. I can't believe it. This is amazing. This is not a bad kind of disbelief. This is joy. And that's like what I said before. The moment he shows them himself to them physically present and alive, everything changes. This, throughout this whole book, we've seen them have lots of doubts and unbelief and fear. And now in this one demonstration, they go to joy and boldness, just like that. And uh, it kind of reminds me, and I'm going to show you confirmation of this in, in the book of Acts in just a second, because that's the sequel to, to Luke's book. But... Um, and it's always a little risky for me to talk about movies that I like from on stage, but I'm going to do it anyway. How many of you have ever seen the movie uh, Risen? Okay. And I like it. Now, some of you might be afraid to put up your hands because you're like, and now he's about to bash it. No, no. I really like that movie. Okay. And uh, I've watched it uh, twice. I watched it with LaDawn once, loved it. And then we watched it with our kids and I loved it. Okay. So now if you go out and rent it and you don't love it, that's totally fine. Okay. There's nothing wrong with you. It's, I'm sure it's me. Um, but anyway, I love that movie. And what the movie Risen is is it's a fictional account, okay? It's a fictional account, it's not true, of a Roman centurion who sees Jesus die. And what the movie is, is then he investigates uh, the resurrection. He's trying to find out where the body is, okay? So again, it's a fictional account. It's not a true story, um, but it's a fictional account of a Roman centurion investigating the resurrection. And there's this one uh, fascinating scene that when I thought of the di disciples disbelieving for joy, they go from afraid and intimidated behind locked doors and they go to unbelievable joy and boldness. I thought of this one scene. In this one scene, this centurion is he's looking to uh, interrogate the disciples because his, his initial thought is the disciples stole the body. And so he finally manages to catch, capture one of the disciples, Bartholomew, and he's trying to find out where they've put the body. He's trying to find out where the other disciples are. And everybody else who's come in for an interrogation up to this point, not the disciples, but other people he's pulled in, have all been intimidated. They come into the centurion's, uh, whatever, I guess we call it an office or whatever, this room. And they're all intimidated and, and afraid because he has all this power and he can hurt them. And then he drags in Bartholomew. And Bartholomew has this biggest, goofiest grin. And he's just not intimidated at all. He's just this wide, wide, wide grin. And the centurion is getting bothered by this grin because this guy's just not scared. And finally, he starts to, to threaten him and he starts to describe the crucifixion and how horrible it is to be crucified. And as he does this, you watch Bartholomew's face just get serious and very serious. And you think, oh, I guess he's succumbing to fear now because of, uh, of you know, the, the description of the crucifixion and dying in such a horrible way. And, and finally, after a, a couple of minutes of describing and threatening the, the crucifixion, then the the centurion finally says to him, now tell me where the other disciples are. 
And Bartholomew kind of gets up very slowly and his face looks very serious and he walks over to the centurion and he goes to whisper in his ear and you think, what's he going to say now? He's, he's, gonna, he's afraid he's going to give up the other disciples. And he bring, breaks into this huge goofy grin again and he says, we're everywhere. <laughs> and the next thing you see is they're pulling this guy away from the centurion and he's waving like this, bye, bye, like this. And he's just got this huge goofy grin. Now again, fictional account. And you say, that's totally made up. It actually captures, I think, a little bit of the attitude we see on these disciples. Once they see Jesus physically alive, they are absolutely unafraid and unintimidated by death and persecution. Let me just show you one example. And there's many I could show you. But Acts chapter 5, they go into the temple. So by this point, Jesus has ascended. It's about a month and a half or two months after Jesus died on the cross. So, so think about it. It's just a couple months later. What would you do? Jesus got dragged and put on a cross. You don't go back into the temple in Jerusalem. Like, go somewhere else. Go to the far end of Israel and preach in a house basement somewhere. And they go, to, they go to the temple, and they start cheerfully, like, I mean cheerfully, and I'll show you the Greek in just a moment. They start cheerfully telling everybody you need to, to, to believe in Jesus to be saved. And so, of course, the religious leaders don't like that. They just killed Jesus. So they drag these guys in in a rage, and we pick up the story in verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Now, I love how, you know, Luke just, the, the Bible just goes over some of these things in like one sentence. It, it wasn't just a couple of slaps to the face. It will have been rods or whips or something. They will have gotten quite a horrific beating, okay? And beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, I want you to notice what the disciples do. Then they, the disciples, left the presence of the council and went and licked their wounds scared and stopped preaching Jesus. Is that what happened? No. Look what, look what it says. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. The, the Greek word there is kairo. It literally, it means cheerful, happy. Like it's not just a spiritual rejoicing. Oh, I rejoice in the Lord that I got persecuted. It's like a bubbling over happy. Hey, we got persecuted for Jesus. These guys are crazy with happiness that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now look at this, verse 42. And look, when the joy goes up, the fear goes out. These are the same guys that were hiding behind locked doors, who throughout the book of Luke, we find them doubting, unbelieving, afraid, all these things. And here they are, and every day in the temple, they went right back to the temple the next day. They got bandaged up a little bit. I mean, the, 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 the Jewish leaders must have just been beside themselves. What do you do with these guys? And they were back cheerfully every day in the temple and house to house. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Here's the point. What changed between hiding behind locked doors and being over, you know, and having doubt and unbelief and fear to going to be uh, cheerfully happy and utterly fearless in the face of death and persecution. One thing happened. Jesus came to them and demonstrated that he was physically alive. That's it. He didn't have to preach a long sermon. He didn't give them lots of theology. He just showed up and said, touch me, I'm here. Can I have a piece of fish? I'm real, I'm alive. Oh, actually, the worst that anyone can do to us is kill us, and then we end up like him. That's the worst you can do is kill us. And if, if, that's, if that's the worst you can do and you believe in the resurrection, then there's no more fear. And the base, it's not that we as Christians don't go through ups and downs and we don't feel sadness at times and, and anger and those various things. It's not to say that there's, there's never a place for those other emotions, but the overriding, driving foundation becomes joy. The overriding foundational emotion becomes joy. So 
Resurrection bodies, resurrection in life. It's physical. Now, it's interesting to me. Jesus goes to lengths. He, he does two things. He goes to lengths. He doesn't just show up to them. It's, it's very interesting to me. It's, it's important to Jesus, and it's important to Luke in this story. The physicality of Jesus' body. Have you ever stopped to think about that? I know we talk about that here at this church, but it's important. He doesn't just show up. It's interesting to me because the way a lot of Christians talk about death and resurrection, it's like the physicality of Jesus doesn't matter. Jesus could have just showed up and said, hey, I'm alive, and he could have been a ghost. But it's important to Jesus in his demonstration of disciples, and it's important to Luke because he writes it all down. Jesus does two things. First, he says, touch me, and then he does the second thing, which I mentioned before, which is he says, have you anything to eat? And in verse 42... They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So he does two demonstrations to show that he's physical. And this is what shows these guys that, the, that there is something to be excited about. Now, the fact that he ate this fish, he didn't just put the fish in, and it dropped out behind him. Right? Isn't that true? He did, he's not a ghost. He's not a hallucination. His resurrection body, Jesus has a physical body right now. Did you know that? Right now. In heaven, he has a physical body. He can eat. The fact that he eats means he's got a throat. He's got a digestive system. Okay? He's got all of those things. He doesn't just look like a human being. He is a human being. Now, he's fully God, too. Absolutely. He is fully God, and he's fully man. But in his humanness, in his body, he doesn't just look like a human being. He is a human being from the inside out, and he's intensely physical. Now, this has implications for us, implications we've talked about lots of self and before, but I'm going to keep talking about it because it seems like our greater Christian culture really misses out on a lot of this a lot of times. And for centuries, for centuries, from the early church fathers on, the church ignored this to a large extent because many Christians saw the physicality and material uh, nature of the world and the universe as being uh, less important than the spiritual. But the fact that Jesus' body was 100% physical, that he could eat food, that he's, that he's physical inside and out, a digestive tract, teeth, tongue, uh, flesh and bones, all these sorts of things, tells us something about our own future as well. And uh, Romans 8, verses 28 to 29. Romans 8, verse 28 is one of the most famous, popular verses out there for Christians everywhere. And there's a reason for it. I love it too. It's one of my favorites. Um, but a lot of times, or most of the time, I'd say 99% of the time, most Christians quote this verse all by itself. They don't look at the verses that came before, and they don't look at the verse which comes right after. And verse 29 is actually tied to verse 28. What is Romans 8, 28? Well, let's just go there very quickly. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that is an incredible truth. That's an amazing truth right there. Oh, I mean, talk about a reason never to be, a, never to be depressed Right? And I'm not talking about you know, mental illness and that sort of thing. But talk about a reason never to be anxious or sad. This is, an, this is a promise in God's word. That for those who love Jesus and who are with a good heart trying to obey him. All things. He turns all things. He turns your health problems. He turns your relationship problems. He turns your anxiety. He turns all things for good. If you're trying to follow him the best you know how. He turns all those things for your good. That's incredible. That is an unbelievable, amazing promise that it all gets turned for good. That's a reason to just jump up, click our heels together right now and say amen. That's awesome. But where we leave it off often is we just don't go to verse 29. How do we know this promise is true? Paul goes on in verse 29. He says this, for, for is a linking word because it ties verse 29 to verse 28. So how do we know that God is going to turn 
all things for our good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, three important concepts there. I want to just go through very quickly. First of all, foreknew. Those whom he foreknew. God foreknows. He knows everything in advance into the future. He knows it all. You say, how can God know everything in the future? He knows everything in the future because he's, he does not experience time the way we do. He created time. Uh, in fact, if you, I mean, and I, I know this from the science side. I, I took a degree in science, which really doesn't help me with preaching. But anyway, that's what I took my degree in. And, uh, and Einstein's theory of relativity, basically the whole thing is that the earth started with, with a bang. And, and out of that, space and time are related to each other. That's what Einstein's theory said, and it's been proven since then. So before there was a universe, there was no time. Now, I don't want to go any further into that. Some of you would be interested in it, some of you would not. But the point is, time started when space started. When the universe started, that's when time started. Which means that God created it all, which means God is outside of time. He doesn't see past, present, and future the way we do. He can look in the future and see it. Okay, so he knows. Those whom he foreknew. So who are those people whom he foreknew? So because he can see the future, he knows in advance everyone whose heart is good who's going to say yes to him and choose him. He knows in advance. Now, some people get hung up on this, and then they think, oh, that just means it's all predetermined, and I don't have a choice, and all that, yada, yada, yada. Just don't tie yourself up in knots. The Bible is very clear that we have a choice. We have to choose to repent, and we have to choose to accept Jesus and put our faith in Jesus. Amen? So the fact that God can see what you're going to do doesn't mean you don't have a choice. You do have a choice every day. But he knows in advance, he can see in advance who's going to choose him and who's going to repent. Okay? Now, so that's the first thing. He foreknew knows those who are going to choose him whose hearts are good. Okay? So those whom he foreknew. Now, what does he do to those people he knows in advance are going to pick him? Well, it says next thing, he predestines them. He stamps something in stone. It's, it's, it's a done deal. This will happen. In the future, it's set in stone. Those whom he foreknew... Those who he knows are going to choose him in advance. He's already made a plan of something he's going to do to them for sure. It's a guarantee 100%. Predestined. What is that thing he has predestined for those people whom he foreknows? Well, the third thing is that they're going to be conformed to the image of his son. So those whom he knows in advance, he has set it in stone. He's already made a plan. He can already see it. 100% of those who have chosen him, he's already made a plan. They're all going to be like Jesus, conformed to his image. Now, I've talked a little bit about this passage before. The fact that they're going to be like Jesus, normally when I talk about it or when pastors talk about it, we talk about our character. And certainly it includes that, no question. So being conformed to his image means anybody who has chosen Jesus, there's coming a day, there's coming a day, okay, in the future, in eternity, you're going to be like him in your character. You're going to be holy. Oh, that's, isn't that going to be amazing? Oh, you're going to be pure. You're going to love. Oh, you're going to, you're going to love like Jesus loves. You're going to have joy like Jesus has joy. You're not going to be tempted by sin. You're going to be conformed to his image on the inside. That's going to be incredible. Amen? But usually when I preach this or other people preach this, they stop right there. The only problem with that is this is coming out of a lengthy passage in Romans chapter 8 that is all about what? The resurrection. And... At the end of this passage, he says, in order that he might become or be the firstborn. You see the last line there. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, uh, why would Paul call Jesus the firstborn of something? 
Because if you think about it, in Jesus' humanness, he wasn't the first of anything. Have you ever thought about that? He wasn't the first human being born. I mean, Adam and Eve and many, 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 many people going on for centuries and millennium before Jesus came along in his human body were born before him. So in his human body, he was not the first human being born. And did you ever think of this either? He also wasn't the first one ever raised from the dead. Jesus wasn't the first one raised from the dead. There's multiple stories of people being raised from the dead already back in the Old Testament. I mean, Elijah the prophet raised the son of uh, the widow of, I think it was Zarephath. He raised her son from the dead. And Elisha, whose name is almost exactly the same as Elijah and whose prophetic ministry closely paralleled Elijah, which leads to a lot of confusion, but anyway, uh, he also raised the son of a widow, the, I think it was the Shunammite woman. And then there was the random guy in 2 Kings. A couple of guys are going are, are gonna, to, they're going to bury their friend and some Moabite raiders come along. They panic, chuck the body into Elisha's tomb and the guy comes alive. And then Jesus raised three people from the dead, at least that we know of, that's recorded, and including his, his, his friend Lazarus. So at least six people and probably more were raised from the dead before Jesus ever raised from the dead. So what is Jesus the firstborn of anything? He's not the first one raised from the dead. He's not the first human being born. What's the only thing Jesus was the firstborn in anything? I'll tell you what he's the firstborn. The only thing he's the firstborn of anything in terms of his humanness is that is getting his resurrection body. Everybody who got raised from the dead before Jesus had to die again. Can you imagine when they had to go about doing that a second time? Oh, come on. I mean, of all the things I got to do twice, I have to die twice. Like go to Disney twice. That's something fun, right? Go, you know, have something fun. Win the lottery twice. That's great. But die twice. All of them that got raised from the dead before Jesus, uh, they all had to die again. They didn't get the resurrected bodies. They just got their old bodies back alive and then they died again. Jesus was the first one to get a resurrection body, which shows us that this verse is specifically honing in on the resurrection. So when Paul says that we're going to be conformed to the image of his son, yes, he's talking about internally and character-wise. Yes. Oh, I love that. We're going to have joy like Jesus. We're not going to be tempted just like Jesus. We're not going to have sin. We're not going to, oh, that's going to be amazing. But primarily what this passage is talking about is we are going to physically be like him in his resurrection body. We are going to have a physical resurrected body like Jesus's conformed to the image of his son. Okay. And one of the things I love about this there, that whole brothers thing actually just blows me away. Um, that Jesus, it almost seems disrespectful. We're going to be conformed to his image. We're going to get a resurrected body like his. Because he wants to have a whole family. He wants to relate to us like brothers and sisters. Is that not amazing? And, and again, here we have to always keep intention. There's a couple things. Jesus is fully God. And he is fully human in his human body. So it's almost like, and I, I don't like using the phrase two sides of Jesus because it makes him seem almost like he has multiple personalities or something, and that's not what it, but I just don't know any other language to capture it. But it's almost like there's two sides to Jesus. There's not two sides. He's one person, but there's his God side, which we read about, you know, in places like Revelation chapter one. Revelation chapter one, you know, Jesus shows up to the apostle John and his eyes are burning like fire. His face is shining like the sun at full strength. It says his voice is like thunder. And when John sees him, he just falls. He literally faints. He falls down at Jesus' feet as though dead. So there's that side. It's his, it's his divinity. It's his godness, his awesomeness, 
bursting through his physical human body so much that people just have to fall down and worship him. He's so awe-inspiring. That is one side of Jesus, and we will see that side many times in heaven where we will just fall down, and his divinity will be so awe-inspiring. We'll just fall down on our faces before him. It'll be incredible. But then there's this other side that we're also going to see in heaven where we have bodies like he does, and he wants to be firstborn among many brothers, and we're going to do like the disciples did. Their experience was different than the Revelation 1 experience. They ate fish with him and talked with him, and he said, touch me. We wanted to hang out. So there's this side of Jesus in heaven where we're going to fall down at his feet. He's going to have, his voice is going to be like thunder, and we're just going to be awe-inspired. And then there's this other side where we're going to just do stuff with him, like brothers and sisters. And we're going to have physical bodies like him. He's a human being. It won't be like we're playing with or, or yeah, playing around with or whatever, or hanging out with or talking with some whatever kind of, but we'll be talking with a man, fully God, but we'll be talking with someone who's fully human. It's, it's really amazing. And that's part, of, that's part of what this whole resurrection story is about, us becoming conformed to the image of Jesus. There's so much here. And one of the things you have to understand about your resurrection body being conformed into his image is, and I have to say this because there's cults out there the, uh, and, and false teaching like, like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and that sort of thing. They take some of this teaching and they actually twist it a little bit. It sounds good. They say, look at Romans. You know, we're we're going to be conformed into his image. We're going to become like Jesus. And what they say is we're going to become gods like Jesus. When it says that we're becoming like Jesus, we're not becoming like Jesus in his godness, in his divinity. Does that make sense? In no way will any of us here ever be God or a God. Never. Small g or big G. We are not becoming like Jesus in his divinity. That is his and his alone. He wouldn't give it away even if he could. He alone is God. We are becoming like Jesus in his humanity, in his humanness. And the neat thing about this is that the resurrection, one of the things you have to understand is there's so much weird teaching about the resurrection. A lot of people almost have this idea like at the resurrection, you sort of just get this, like this, what, you know, this body is nothing. It's just going to be gone. And you kind of just get this other body from God. But the word resurrection doesn't mean you just go and get some random new body, some celestial body. Resurrection means the old one gets brought back to life and renewed. There's continuity. Does that make sense? Continuity. At the resurrection, you will still be you. Thankfully, you'll be a lot better and better looking. And me too. Thank you. <laughs> you will still be you, but it'll be you resurrected. And we see this again. Luke, Luke and Jesus both are very concerned that we know this. How do we know this? First of all, when Jesus shows up to them with his physical body, what, what's in the tomb? Nothing. Why is the tomb empty? Because his old body is gone. If it was just a random new body, the old body would still have been there. But it wasn't still there. The tomb was empty because it was that body that got resurrected. It was still Jesus. And then, even more, we can see the continuity of Jesus from his, from his body to his resurrected body. As he says, touch the scars. He says, it's me. You can touch the scars of my hands and my feet. It's my body has been raised from the dead. It's not some random thing. It's still me. And you are still going to be you. Now, some of you might be a little worried there, and you might be going, whoa, 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 whoa. He still had his scars. I never thought about that before. Does that mean I'm bringing some of my defects? Does that mean I'm bringing some of my 
brokenness in my body is going to be carried with. I was really hoping to get away with that. Get away from that, right? I was getting, so hoping to get away from some of the stuff I see in the mirror every morning, right? Like, some of you might be depressed. Are we taking our scars with us? And the answer is absolutely not. I, Jesus obviously wants to carry those scars with him as a reminder for all of eternity of what he's done for us. Amen. But your resurrection body, all of the defects right down to the DNA level, the things you don't even know are defects. Every defect, inside, outside, deep down at the cellular level, all of it, completely gone, not touched by sinner sickness or death. So that means your resurrection body is going to be different, but the same. It's still you, but, and yet you're different. You're vastly improved. Now, Paul wrestled with this in first Corinthians 15, this idea that it's still you, but you're way, way better. And he wrestled with this in first Corinthians 15. I want to read it to you. First Corinthians 15 verses, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Now, just by the way, so you know when Paul is mad here, it's not bad to ask questions. And Paul's not mad because people are asking questions. Some of the Corinthians who should have known better had actually stopped. They were teaching against the resurrection because of their human logic. They had had discussions and they said, well, how does this really work? Like if a person's body uh, if it disappears, like if it, it, you know, if Jesus comes back and someone's body has just rotted down to nothing, or if they get burned to death or whatever, how would that body get resurrected? They were asking questions like that. And then based on that, they said, well, obviously there can't be a resurrection. So they weren't asking honest questions. And so Paul is upset at them. You foolish person. Now he's going to give them an analogy. What you saw does not come to life unless it dies. Verse 37. And what you saw is so, sorry, so I did not what you saw, what you sow. Help me to read, Lord. Verse 37. In what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. Okay, so here's the analogy Paul's going to use. Because it's still you. It's like a seed. It's like a seed. Now, if I, plant, if I have a seed, if I have an apple seed in my hand, and I plant that apple seed in the ground and it grows, it's going to become an apple tree. Now, there's continuity there. That tree came from that seed. It's not like something random popped up. I plant an apple seed and, and a pine tree pops up or, a, or some random thing just pops up, a pig or a cow or something. No, no. If I plant an apple seed, I'm going to get an apple tree. There's continuity. The apple tree comes from the apple seed. Okay? But at the same time, the tree is vastly, vastly superior to the seed. Is it not? I mean, that seed by itself isn't good for anything. You, you can't eat it. It doesn't give you shade in the summer. It doesn't look pretty. It doesn't give you blossoms. It doesn't do anything. It's just a seed. In fact, if all you got out of an apple seed was apple seeds, who cares? But the fact of the matter is you plant that apple seed, it becomes a tree. It becomes large. It becomes beautiful. It gives you fruit. In fact, it even gives you more apple seeds. The glory of the apple tree far exceeds the glory of the apple seed. Isn't that true? But the point is there's continuity. The apple tree comes from the apple seed. So Paul says, you got to view, this is a whole new way of viewing death. You have to die because just like a seed has to go in the ground, you have to die in order to get planted to get your resurrection body. Right? So it's just part of the planting process. So we all have to get planted so that we can reap a resurrection body. And here's the point. If I plant a Chris Dirksen, I get back a Chris Dirksen at the end. Just a lot better, much improved. If I plant a Chris Dirksen, like I'm... I'm not getting back Wayne Gretzky or Grace Fast or, or, or anyone like that. I'm, I'm getting back me, 
Okay, it'll still be me. You'll re we'll recognize each other. And yet, infinitely more glorious, just like an apple tree to an apple seed. Infinitely better. Every, every part, beautiful, handsome, strong, powerful. Paul's going to go on to describe all of that. Infinitely better. So he says, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. There are, verse 40, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star and glory. By the way, it, after the resurrection, there's still going to be lots of differences. Star differs from star and glory. Everybody, handsome, beautiful, powerful, amazing, immortality, no defects, no ugliness, amazing, 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 and yet all different. There will be shorter and taller and skinnier and wider and whiter and blacker and all of that in heaven and everything in between. In our resurrected bodies, you will still be you, but you will be vastly improved. Still you, but without defect. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. You, you, go, into the, you go into your death, a dying, sick, sin-filled person, and you get raised an eternal, life-filled, glorious person. Isn't that awesome? It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Can you imagine that? You're in your resurrected body. There is a glory to our resurrected bodies. Wow. It is sown in weakness. Think of all your weaknesses inside and out. How quickly we get tired. How quickly we get hungry. How quickly we get depressed. How quickly this. How quickly that. It is raised. It is sown in weakness. We die in weakness, but it gets raised in power. Wow. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now I have to just time off for just a second because in our current culture, we see that word spiritual different than Paul saw it. We see spiritual as opposed to physical. So the moment we read spiritual, we think, oh, in your resurrected body, you're like a ghost. You're just floating around. No, Jesus went to lengths. Touch my hands and touch my feet. Flesh and bones. Let me eat a piece of fish. He's physical. Paul didn't see spiritual as non-physical. He's using spiritual to differentiate from under death, our current bodies, death and decay and, and pain and sin. By spiritual, he means eternal, full of life, fully physical, but full of joy and life. Raise a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus is it is written, verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being, being the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Now, the last Adam, who is he talking about there? Well, obviously, he's talking about Jesus. So he's making a parallel. I've talked about this verse before, but he's making a parallel there between Jesus and Adam. He's calling them both Adam, okay? Now, why is he making this parallel calling Jesus the last Adam? Well, what do we know about the first Adam? Well, the first Adam is where we got these bodies from, ultimately. Isn't it true? Because there was Adam and Eve. They were the first ones, and then they had babies who had babies who had babies who had babies, 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 on and on, until eventually there was us. And ultimately, everything we've inherited, the fact that we all die, the fact that we all get sick, the fact that we all sin, all of it ultimately goes back to Adam. So we've inherited this weak, sin-filled body we have inherited from Adam. Okay? So that's the first Adam, Adam and Eve in Genesis. And currently, we all die because we've inherited his traits. So who's the last Adam? Well, the last Adam is Jesus. So the first Adam was the first person, and from him we have inherited our traits. 
The last Adam is Jesus. He's the first person with a resurrected body. And he's the one who gives us eternal life. And he's the one who gives us our resurrected bodies. So at the resurrection, we cease to be descendants of the first Adam, in a sense. I mean, there's a sense in which, because we're all human, but we become now sons of Jesus, of the resurrection body, and now we inherit all of his traits instead of the first Adam's traits. And the last Adam has much better traits. He never dies. He never gets sick. He's never tempted to sin. He never has a bad day. He is just full of joy and love at all times. And so when we receive our resurrected bodies, we get made in the image of Jesus. And so that's what Paul goes on to say. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. So just like Adam was, that's what we're like now. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, just like we now have the first Adam's traits, in the future we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And then he finishes with this. I love this. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, all of this theology was wrapped up for the disciples in one moment when Jesus just appeared to them and said, touch me, give me a piece of fish. And after that, their brains just flipped. They went from scared and doubting and unbelieving with one thing. If death's been defeated, we have nothing to fear. They became the most joy-filled, bold, insanely happy people on the planet. It was terribly contagious and lots of people wanted to follow them. And so we go back to the book of Luke and now we go to finish the book of Luke and we skip ahead just a few verses. And skipping ahead a few verses, Luke doesn't talk. There's about a 40-day gap. What I'm about to read you is this is the ascension. Jesus is going back to heaven. This didn't happen right after he showed them his hands and his feet. He was with them in Galilee, we know, for about 40 days. Luke doesn't give us any information about that. Uh, John chapter 20 and 21 do. He was in Galilee with them and his resurrected body appeared to them a number of times, teaching them and hanging out with them. And at the end of that, now after 40 days, he's now going to go back to heaven. And this is where Luke ends his book. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, a little town just outside of Jerusalem. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So the book of Luke begins with Jesus' arrival on the earth in his human body. The story of his birth. And the book of Luke ends with his departure back to heaven. Okay? And that's where Jesus is right now. His spirit is everywhere. His spirit is always with us. We are never alone. But Jesus in his physical human body is in heaven. And that's where he's going to remain until he comes back. Okay? And actually we read a little bit more about that in Acts, which is the sequel to Luke. And just Acts chapter 1, just a few more details here which are really neat. Verse 6, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. That's the Great Commission. We're very close to seeing the Great Commission completed. It could happen in our generation. It's amazing. Verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? What do you mean, why are they looking into heaven? 
Why wouldn't they be looking into heaven? I mean, it's, right? I mean, this is Jesus. And he, just like he came, now he left, and it's actually pretty cool. On the one hand, they're going to miss him like crazy, but now he just goes up and up and up and up, and then a cloud takes him away. I'd be looking into heaven. I just love how these angels operate, and then just show up and, men of Galilee, why are you, why are you staring up there? And I do wonder if maybe there's a little bit more going on here. I wonder if they'd actually been standing looking up for a long time. What do we do now? Oh my goodness. These angels just have to kind of come down and, guys, 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 he's giving you a commission. Let's go. Okay, snap out of it. Okay, go pray until, the, until Pentecost, all right? But move it along. I wonder if they've been standing there for quite a while. But anyway, right? Then the angel says this, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Matthew 24, he will come in the clouds. He was taken away in a cloud and he's out there somewhere right now in his physical body. He's out there right now waiting for the great commission to be completed. And then he's going to come back the same way that he left. He's going to come back in a cloud to set up his kingdom here on earth. And so Luke finishes with these words, the last sentence in the book of Luke. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with, you guessed it, great joy. Their whole lives now marked by joy. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. It's interesting to me that the book of Luke contains many highs and lows. There's sorrow, there's anger, there's hurt, there's hope. Even right from the beginning, even Jesus' birth isn't all joy. There's lots of hurt. I mean, after Jesus is born, Herod kills all the, the young boys in Bethlehem in his attempt to get rid of the Messiah. I mean, there's tragedy, there's pain. The book of Luke has lots of highs and lows. And then, of course, there's the cru crucifixion. Awful, agonizing story. But I think it's so fitting that the book ends with unadulterated joy. In the end, joy wins. Why does joy win? Because Jesus actually rose from the dead. He has a physical body, and he's going to raise us from the dead too. And because of that, even though we have, are all going to have many ups and downs in life, in the end, joy wins. Joy wins. And I think sometimes when we read this story, we are too disconnected from it. We read it and we go, of course the disciples had joy. They saw it happen. Wait a minute. The reason they were joyful is because Jesus has conquered death and that means we have nothing to fear. The same reasons they had for being joyful, we have for being joyful, except we have more. We're much closer to the time. We're 2,000 years closer to the time. We could be in the generation because the Great Commission is just about done. So we read this and go, oh yeah, that was neat. They got to be full of joy. Wait a minute. The same reasons they have for feeling joy is what we have for feeling joy. Now, it's not bad to not feel happy every single day. But we can actually pray and say, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we want to enter into that joy. Amen. Would you like to enter into that joy? I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm going to pray that the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, is going to help us to enter into the joy of his Holy Spirit. They enter into the joy of the resurrection like the disciples did. Lord Jesus, your spirit is right with us right now. Your spirit is everywhere and we are never alone. But as I pray to you, you are in your physical body in heaven and you're listening to this right now. And you hear our prayers. Jesus, I and my family in this church 
want to enter into the joy of your resurrection. What's the worst thing that can happen to us? Ha, we die. That's the worst thing. Now we, that just means we get planted in the ground so we can reap a resurrection body. We get to come and be with you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who lives with the fear of sickness or the fear of death, I pray that you would lift that fear off them today. Death has no hold of us anymore. Death is just a doorway now for us into life. Would you take away our fear of sickness and our fear of death? And Lord, along with them, all the other fears that actually just come under that, our fear of people, our fear of not being good enough, our fear of not making it, our fear of the unknown, all of those things subsumed under the fear of death. Jesus, you have rescued us from it all. All things work together for our good. All things. So all that's happening to us from here on out is being turned for our good for all of eternity. So Lord Jesus, help us to enter into your joy by the power of your Holy Spirit. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.